Hello and welcome to the Urbanist Agenda, the podcast where we reopen closed open streets. I am Jason from Not Just Bikes and my co-host today is Dave from City Beautiful. Dave, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, so I'm Dave. I am the producer of City Beautiful, another YouTube channel on city planning. And in my spare time, I'm a professor in the Department of City and Regional Planning here at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. Yeah, so I brought Dave on because he knows what he's talking about, which is really helpful because I don't. Now, one of the things that Dave specializes in is things around pedestrianization, pedestrian malls, that kind of thing. And so he brought an interesting subject up the other day, and I thought, you know what, we should talk about that on a podcast. Maybe you can introduce what your thinking was here. So I think a lot of us in the urbanist world were sort of excited about the possibility of removing cars from streets as a result of the pandemic, right? People were driving less. We need yeah. to see more outdoor dining. And a lot of cities did that. And now... We're in 2023, and cities that did do it are at this reckoning stage of whether or not we keep those spaces open to pedestrians or bring cars back. And it's been a fascinating thing to watch as some cities are going one direction, some cities are going the other, and sort of the complicated issues around that. Yeah, indeed. It's interesting because it's a very different situation over here in Europe. I haven't been following all countries in Europe, but there's a few things I was following in Germany and in the Netherlands, of course. And here, we didn't really do that open streets thing. Like, that wasn't really a thing that was done. One of the things that was done here in several places in Amsterdam was to take a road, or street rather, and reduce the speed limit to 30 kilometers an hour and put bicycles and cars in the same lane and then make the bicycle lane an extra sidewalk. So that was kind of the extent to what was done here. So I know that in North America, there were parking spots that were turned into cafe seating, and there's some streets that were closed off completely, as we're about to talk about. But it was interesting. I didn't really see that done here. I saw Friedrichstrasse in uh, Berlin. I don't know if that was actually related to COVID or not. I thought that was sort of a thing they were planning anyway. And then they just happened to implement it in 2020. And my instinct here is that there are probably enough open spaces in cities already in Europe to accommodate that sort of outdoor dining, which we did not have as much here in the U.S. and Canada. That was my gut feeling, is that kind of like sidewalk cafe seating is the thing here already. And so it just Mm -hmm. continued to be a thing. And as I said, the only thing that I did see done here was sometimes they turned the bicycle lane into more of a sidewalk. But that was about it. So those went away very quickly, actually, even before COVID was even close to like, quote unquote, over. They removed those quite quickly as the rules changed. So it was only about a year period that those things were in place where... Mm-hmm bicycle lanes were sidewalks, but it's different in the U.S. So why don't you tell me a little bit about that? To be honest, I haven't followed it that closely. Yeah, it was fascinating in 2020 in the depths of the COVID-19 pandemic during the lockdown periods there where we saw, you know, people couldn't go out to restaurants. They were stuck at home. And as cities were trying to figure out how to support their local businesses, this idea came around that, well, we should have outdoor seating and outdoor dining. We started learning more about the virus. If we kind of go back in time, that being outdoors is generally considered safe. So it was fascinating, again, from a planning perspective, that you had cities implementing these emergency ordinances, these emergency programs to shut down entire streets in some cases or allow parklets. I was on a conference panel with somebody from Pittsburgh, and she showed that they accepted essentially back-of-napkin drawings for open streets from local businesses. (laughs) Literally, they showed, like, it was hand-drawn. Like, they had to show where the ADA access would be and if there's any fire hydrants or things like that for emergency services. But they got hand drawings for shutting down entire blocks of city streets, and they approved them based on the back-of-napkin drawing. That's, like, how guerrilla this was at the time, right? We were in uncharted territory. I love that. Which I think also shows... 
honestly how little we actually need to make these spaces, right? Like, you know, they function perfectly well with very little forethought. Now, again, it was sort of pitched as an emergency measure in a lot of cases. Mm -hmm. And so now a few years on, I think a lot of folks are assuming that, well, we're back to normal, business as usual, therefore the streets will go back. While others in cities around the United States said, well, we really like this. Why should we go back? We've actually made a quantum leap forward, and this might be an actual silver lining in an otherwise terrible situation of a pandemic. So it's been interesting. It's really been city by city from what I've seen. Some cities, you know, think, yes, it's been great. Other cities have quietly just sort of made these open spaces evaporate and cars have returned without much fuss. So I have lots of thoughts on this. I mean, there's so many different things at play here, and I'm trying to parse out, you know, is it cities of different like income groups or cities in different right. like locations? Like why, why are we sort of seeing these different outcomes? Yeah, well, that's what I'd be curious about. Like, where is the drive to do this? Is it just from the people who drive through the neighborhood or is it from business owners or like, do you have a feel as to who's asking for the cars to come back? It's fascinating. So in the city of Santa Barbara, which is just down right. the road for me, right. they opened up an eight-block pedestrian mall as a result of the pandemic. Oh, wow. Eight blocks. It was one of the largest I think I've heard of. It's a big deal. And they're still yeah. debating whether or not to make this permanent. And it's a knockdown, drag-out kind of fight. And on one side, you have restaurant owners who really do like it, obviously. Right. They get right. additional seating for the restaurants. On the other side are their neighbors, the business owners, who are firmly entrenched around the idea that you should have parking in front of your store and this pedestrian mall is slowly killing their businesses. So it's fascinating because I think we tend to uh, have business owners be one block, but right. they are actually sort of two different groups here at odds. And in public opinion polling, the pedestrian mall is shown to be quite popular there. Right. Yeah, I've been to Santa Barbara. I had a friend who lived there while I was living in the Bay Area a long time ago. I'm very old. <laughs> I lived there in the late 90s. But uh, but Santa Barbara always kind of impressed me how it was a little bit more, well, it's a very wealthy area, but uh, yes. <laughs> it was a little bit more sort of walking friendly to begin with, if you will. So yeah. that's the kind of place where I think they have the type of visitors who would appreciate that kind of thing. So, yeah, it is always interesting. People always talk about business owners, but yeah, I've seen that as well. It's really not all business owners, and it's not always what you would expect. I once saw an example where a business owner was really against installing bike lanes on a street, and the business owner leading the charge was the owner of a bicycle shop, which that, that blew my mind. I was <laughs> yeah, like, I'm really not sure that. where your logic is here, dude. <laughs> But it really is not what you'd expect. And there are some cases as well where some businesses really do benefit quite a lot from walk-in traffic, whereas others do not. And sometimes it's not even rational. Sometimes it's no. just some crusty old person who's been in that location for 40 years and still in the mentality that everyone drives there, even when the data clearly shows they don't. Yeah, when talking about this topic, I like to remind folks that small business owners are conservative, like lowercase c yes. conservative. They are yes. afraid of change, right? And in part because being a small business owner is being in a precarious position quite often, right? Some of these businesses are only two or three months out from going belly up. right? So any change sounds scary to them. And I think they're often willing to place blame on pedestrianization for some of their troubles, even if that's not necessarily the case. Yeah. I saw this as well when I lived in Toronto, that uh, some of those business owners also... They're not the most data-based people that you might meet. You know, they do a lot of stuff on gut feeling and things like that. And they've been doing whatever it is they're doing for a very long time. 
So there was an example where some bicycle lanes were installed on one street and the city actually got good data because they got the data from the payment machines. Nice. So it wasn't going around and asking the business owners for their opinions or anything like that. They literally, from the payment processors, from the banks, they got anonymized data that was this street was this and this street was that before and after. And so they could look at payment receipts. This is the Bloor Street study, right? On Bloor yes. Street? Yes. Yes. So I'll tell you how nerdy I am. When I visited <laughs> Toronto in November, I met up with Reese from RM Transit. Yeah. yeah and yeah. I had him meet up on that street because I wanted to see that project <laughs> specifically because I know that study. It's a gold standard study in this realm. Yes, exactly. And then so with that study, they were able to show exactly how much benefit the strip with bike lanes got financially versus others at a very database way. That's hilarious that you've been there. What did you think of the Blur Street project? I mean, I thought it was good. I mean, obviously better than parking. I don't know. You well, know. yeah, I know, right? Uh, I thought some of it was good. Some of it was not as good. I don't, I don't know. I'm coming from the Dutch perspective and I tend to oh, be yeah, like well, yeah, really yeah, yeah. critical. Sorry, I'm on a curve Really, here. really critical. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? The... <laughs> Some of it was actually like decent. They had curbs and they had like proper bicycle lanes and not as wide as I'd like to see them. But, you know, it was impressive. Yeah, that whole corridor is still a little too car oriented for my liking. Yeah, I wouldn't love biking there, but it certainly is better than having parking. Yeah, I think absolutely. So in terms of pedestrianization, going back to Toronto for a second, because it's just what I know best in North yeah. America, they had a program called Cafe TO, I think it was exactly what you were describing where they took parking spots and made them into extra dining. And as far as I know, that is still there. They are ugly as hell. They're literally concrete barriers that have been put up, like the kind that they use for construction, with all these flashing lights and reflectors all over it. I mean, it looks horrid, but people do sit there. They do seem to enjoy their time. So is that what you're seeing in other places, that same kind of thing? Yeah, those are interesting, those parklets. So I have a couple of things to say about those as well. So, Well, go ahead. I mean, that's why I got you here. You're the expert. Yeah, I know. This is what you get for bringing on like a professor. I will just talk and talk. <laughs> <laughs> this is my job now. So no, it's good. I mean, to get back to sort of that business owner divide too, it was fascinating here. I live in San Luis Obispo. There was a parklet, you know, one parking space parklet in front of a cafe downtown, and they were above a business owner who complained to the city about the parklet, and the city removed the parklet because that one business owner didn't want it. The cafe was devastated. So it's just, again, sort of these, even at the parklet level, one single parking space downtown, and we have three garages that are never full. That That is the level of, like, pettiness (laughs) that we're at with these parklets. The parklet stuff is really interesting, though, from a few different angles because, So streets are public space, right? They are for all of us. And I think the number one argument for parklets that I hear, or one of the top arguments is, why should we be giving this public space for someone to store a private vehicle for two to 10 hours at a time, right? This is valuable space, right? So bringing in a parklet where lots of people can use it over the course of a day, it's just, in terms of sheer numbers, more people are enjoying that eight by 16 chunk of eight by 16 feet, sorry, Uh, (laughs) I speak imperial, uh, for that space, right? But then it's interesting because you have counter arguments to this of, well, it depends on who's the patron of the restaurant, right? If it's a high-class restaurant, well, now you've taken away a space where, you know, anybody who owns a vehicle, which is, you know, a broad demographic range, could have used it. And now only people who can afford that restaurant can use that space, Right. So it's it's just it's I don't know. I mean, how ridiculous you find that. But it's there are I do find that a little ridiculous. I 
I've read honest-to-God journal articles that make this case. So this is a thought that is out there. It's actually fantastic to hear about like this and think about the difference in the context of Europe because I could not see someone in Europe with a straight face saying that a car is more accessible to larger income class than a space you know, that people walk by. Car brain is a very creative brain. I will say yeah. they're very good at coming up with arguments. I know I am less sympathetic, obviously, to that argument as well. But yeah. I mean, that is an argument that's out there. I think the number one sort of reason you're seeing cities sort of move away from it is actually maybe equally frustrating in that those parking spaces are generating revenue for a city. So then if they want this to pencil out for them, they need to start charging the businesses for that space. And some businesses are not into that. So during the emergency measure times, it was just free, right? Like give the space to the restaurants, no big deal. So some restaurants are making the call that like, it's not worth what the city wants to charge for that. And other people are like, well, why are we charging for this anyway? It is obviously just a better use of space and that sort of thing. But then, you know, the Shoops, Donald Shoop and all of us are saying, well, it is valuable space. You know, we should be charging for it. I don't know. So a lot of it comes down to dollars and cents at the end of the day, actually. Yeah, I mean, that certainly I can understand that argument because it is a piece of space that the city uses and the cafe, the restaurant is going to be paying their lease, right, for the space that they lease. And if they rent more square footage, they pay more. I mean, it's it is a little weird to say that you get this chunk of land for free. At the same time, I understand that argument about it's better for the city for everyone. So this is a better use of space. I actually am curious now. I feel like I need to look that up to find out what the rules are here in the Netherlands, because obviously there are a lot of places that have the frontage, the cafe space out front. That's a very, very common thing here. Mm -hmm. I'm curious to know how much they pay for it, if anything. I suspect they have to pay something for it. I mean, it does seem reasonable, right? Yeah. But the downside, of course, is that some restaurants just choose not to pay for it after the pandemic. And that's why we're seeing them go away in some U.S. cities is just, well, they don't want to do it anymore. It's fine. But right. Yeah. I mean, I guess the thing is, it doesn't necessarily have to immediately turn back into parking. But then if it is a revenue problem for the city, then it's a revenue problem for the city. I actually was talking to Urban 3 recently who have done you know, a whole bunch of great work in terms of city finances. And I'm working with them on a project to look at on a square footage basis where Amsterdam makes its money, some of these graphs (laughs) that they've done in the past. And it is actually fascinating how much of the Amsterdam city budget, even Amsterdam, comes from parking fees. Yeah. It's shocking, actually. And again, like, it's hard to be against it in some ways because, like I said, Donald Shoup has taught us all, right, that's valuable land. You should be paying for parking. And why shouldn't the city be taking that money and putting it to good use, right? I think the argument is usually that they're selling it for too cheap, if anything. You can get these monthly parking. In some cities in North America, you're getting monthly street parking passes for dollars, like a few bucks. You know, it's just shockingly cheap. Oh, and I roll my eyes. I mean, again, I live in a fairly small town, San Luis Obispo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been there. We have a thriving downtown. It's nice. And people complain in the newspapers all the time of how hard it is to drive there and how expensive parking is there. (laughs) Parking is $1.50 an hour. Yeah, (laughs) right? nothing. And the expectation that drivers have that you should be able to pull up anywhere in the city and, you know, be so convenient and free is just astounding. I mean... Can we at least have downtowns be a place where it's maybe slightly inconvenient to use a car? And heaven forbid we have places where it's, you know, more convenient to walk or bike there or take transit, you know? So I always roll my eyes. It's just... Uh, that's know. a whole other discussion that we can I talk know, I'm for sorry. hours about. Like, uh, <laughs> you know, when it comes to parking and driver entitlement and downtowns, 
using their space for storing cars. Oh, my God. Yeah, that's a whole other podcast, I think. I know, but I mean, it does sort of relate because, I mean, of course, moving down parklets here just to open streets, we saw some of these in fairly dense urban areas, certainly in New York City. You start building places where it is a sort of pedestrian first. And if there's any place you can do it in U.S. cities, it's downtown because the density yeah. is right. I mean, I always think like, you know, there's many, 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 many places where folks who love cars can use cars all the time, but there are very few places in the U.S. where you can just sort of be a pedestrian. And yeah. like, can we just have one place in every city? Like one, <laughs> you know, one area in every city where I don't have to use the car? I know, right? I was listening to your 15-minute city discussion with Adam something. I'm like, yeah, can we have one 15-minute neighborhood in every just city? Please. Is that too much to ask? Just please, one. Just one. I've had this discussion too, even back when we're living in Toronto, but especially when I started the YouTube channel and people would say to me, you know, why do you have to make such a big fuss out of it? You live the way you want. I'll live the way I want. You know, some suburbanite would say this and we're all fine. Right. And I'm like, no, it's not fine because you have what yeah. you want. The only thing that's legal I can't live the way is I want. to build what you want. <laughs> the only thing that's yeah. being built is what you want. There's nothing left. And you people want to park there. I know, seriously. <laughs> Let us have this one place, you know? I know, please, just for the love of God, just one place that's not infested with cars. <laughs> So you sent this article over, which I will link yes. in the description for anyone reading. The New York Times, this is how New York lost 63 miles of pedestrian-friendly open streets. 63 miles is a lot, actually. I know New York is a big city, but still, that's an yeah. awful lot. So what's happening there? Yeah, I think they only have 20 miles left, so you put it in further really? perspective. Oh, yes. wow. So... Again, we're sort of seeing this idea of a return to normalcy of, well, this was an emergency measure. The emergency mm -hmm. is over and we're going back. I think there are struggles here around in order to create and maintain these streets in a way that's positive for everyone. It, it does cost money. Now, the article, I don't have it open right in front of me, but it's several million dollars a year. I think something like right. $8 million a year to implement this program, which – is honest to God a drop in the bucket compared to what we spend on other forms of transportation? Yeah, I see it here. It says the city spends about $7 million annually on open streets. Yes. Which does seem like an awful lot of money, but I think this is one of those things where if you think $7 million sounds like a lot of money, then you know nothing about city municipal budgets. Oh, yeah. Because I've seen this happen, too. They'll be, like, installing a bike lane, and there'll be some community meeting, and someone's like, they're spending $100,000 on bike lanes. And I'm like, dude, do you have any idea how much that traffic light costs down the Seriously. street? Like, no concept. Repaving that on-ramp down the road is, like, $5 million easy. <laughs> I know, right? Or, like, you know, or whatever. Yeah, or, like, rebuilding or, this thing's $100 million easy. Exactly, you know? right? I remember there was this one project going on in New Jersey where they were just doing, a like, a reconfiguration of this one intersection. It was like $250 million or something like that. There's no community meeting about it. Nobody has these discussions. You know, it's just, yeah, that's just expected. Yes. But I think it's, what do they call it? Bike shed issue. This is from the UK where they were debating a nuclear power plant and they were talking about like the various issues of it. And the committee was talking about this bike shed for the employees where they park. And they spent like 45 minutes talking about the bike shed and what they make the roof out of and all this kind of thing. Because people understand bike sheds, right? But right. then when it came to like some bigger piece of the reactor, they're like, yeah, that's uh, 500 million pounds, no problem. And it was like a five minute issue because nobody understands that. So yes. I think these do become a bike shed issue. Yes, I think 7 million in terms of the New York City budget is not very much. But, you know, again, it was sort of money they weren't intending to spend. I get that. Right. And I think people don't always realize 
to what extent it does take an effort to keep these spaces activated and programming a space. So these are two very plenary terms of like, you know, you want these spaces essentially to feel comfortable, welcoming, vibrant, and it requires someone to set up a food truck there or have a Zumba class or whatever, like getting those spaces activated takes time. And New York City and other places have found that working in partnership with local organizations can help that, but that still costs money. And then you need policing as well. And now, that's another sort of equity thing. In general, when I'm saying policing, the policing that you typically find in these are not like New York City, like cops. It's the folks in like red polo shirts sweeping things up and just making sure everything's okay and right. you know, setting chairs back up that gets knocked down. So you need those people too, and they're not free. So I think for all those reasons, you're sort of just seeing a wind down again, partly because it's seen as an emergency measure, and then also to keep it going costs money. Now, again, I, of course, think it's worth the money and then some. But if you want a counter opinion, read the comments on the New York Times article I linked. <laughs> <laughs> That's the first rule of the internet, man. Don't well, read know. the comments. <laughs> so New York Times comments in general are somewhat better than regular newspaper comments okay. because they have a national argument. So sometimes I will read the New York Times comments just to sort of see. And they're about 50-50 ridiculous and not ridiculous. On this article, it is 100% ridiculous. The amount of people just like, you've heard all the arguments, I'm sure if anybody's, you know, been in this space at all. The idea that like, you know, why are we doing this? It's, you know, people still need to drive in the city. It's still a real city. Why you blah, blah, blah. But that's the urbanist agenda, right? So <laughs> it was a little shocking to me to read because, you know, you have to remember in New York City, city, when we talk about mode share, only a third of trips are made by car in the five boroughs, if I recall. So most people are making most of their trips in another way. But boy, oh boy, will car folks still make their voices heard on a New York Times article, even in New York City. Yeah, I am making the mistake of reading some of the comments here now. This is actually really surprising. New York City is such a strange place to me because I remember reading that more than 70% of households in Manhattan, obviously that's right in Manhattan, not the five boroughs, but over 70% of households in Manhattan do not have a car. Yeah. But you go out in the street and it's like five lanes rammed with cars. It's shocking yeah. how many cars there are in that city. Oh, yeah. There's no excuse for Manhattan. I had the pleasure to live in Manhattan for one year right. after I was in college and definitely did not need a car in any sense. And a car would have been nothing but a burden in Manhattan where I was living. Yeah, right. So, I mean, I think a lot of these comments are from our outer borough folks. You know, you can actually have a single family place in Queens or outer Brooklyn and that sort of thing and lead a semi-suburban life. And certainly in Staten Island and still consider yourself yeah, a New Yorker. So yeah. it's a city of diversity, <laughs> for sure. It is a bizarre place. One of these days, that'll have to be a video topic, but I don't know if I'm ready to go down that path. Well, you got to get into the transit. That's a whole podcast <laughs> series right there. Yeah, that is really a podcast here. I'm not even going to touch that, but yeah. Oh my God, New York is something else altogether. So yeah, New York is a bit of a weird one when it comes to the United States in general. Oh yeah. What are you seeing in other cities around the US? I'm seeing some positives also. There are folks right. standing up for open streets. San Francisco, Golden Gate Park, that was a big issue last year. And overwhelmingly, the public wanted those to stay open to pedestrians and closed to traffic. And they were up against major museums and cultural institutions Mm. in the area that were sort of well endowed with money and still won. So there have been some notable victories, some large scale ones in cities. I think Boston had a couple of examples of ones that stayed open. And honestly, like some of the ones in New York City are still big wins. If you sort of look at them in the sense that like a temporary space is now made permanent. The article also mentions that in New York City, they actually passed a law to keep some of these open. 
and they have to keep a certain number open in low-income areas, which is another sort of great equity piece to consider here. Uh, we always have to be thinking about where are these open streets located? Yeah, absolutely. And whether they are used by residents or whether they're used by tourists. Exactly. So we are seeing great things happening. And certainly, I would say that we are in a better place in 2023 than we would be in an alternate 2023 if the pandemic did not happen, right? So right. like, I think it did right. accelerate some of these conversations. And not that I'm obviously rooting for another pandemic by any means. But again, we did end up with some silver linings here. I think right. even in places where they closed the streets again and returned them to cars, the fact that the public in these cities were having a debate about whether or not to have cars on streets is a novel concept. And it starts pushing this conversation to the forefront in a way that we've never had before. Yeah. Even in places where we've lost, you lost the battle, but the war is still fair game. The war on cars, that is, you're talking about, yes, right? Yes, <laughs> yes, of course, the war on cars. To mention another podcast. Guys, <laughs> slip at various podcast names by every speech here. <laughs> Yeah, it is fascinating. And I think it's important that those conversations are happening. And I think you're correct that if we hadn't had the pandemic, those conversations wouldn't be happening in the United States. And it is, again, so fascinating to see the difference here in Europe, because the conversation is much farther along here. Oh, like yeah. the conversation about like closing a street off to cars is just sort of like a regular issue that happens all the time. There are streets being closed off to cars regularly here in Amsterdam. And it's not an issue of if a street will close, it's sort of when almost, right? And it's which one's first and then what's the configuration going to look like and that kind of thing. So yeah, it is good that that conversation is happening in the United States. It's tough sometimes for me to get out of the circle of urban planning when I hear about the U.S. because I never hear about what's going on there. I don't go there. I don't live there. I'm not American. Yes. So I never really hear what's happening except through the filter of urbanism. So like, what's the feeling for like normies who would never know your channel or mine or even the cities are planned? How did they feel about there being fewer cars? Like, what's that sentiment from normal people in America? I think outside the urbanist bubble, I think there were actual genuine positive associations or positive thoughts about this stuff. I think I heard some folks say that they did not prefer to maybe eat in the parklet right up against moving traffic. Like that was sort yeah. of like a downside. But in general, I think in places where the streets were closed and they got to use them, they enjoyed them. And I think that's not a surprising feeling, actually, because for a lot of Americans, they do actually inhabit open streets, but only on a time-limited basis, right? So here in San Luis Obispo, we have a famous farmer's market every single Thursday night of the year. It is open. Right. And we shut down, like, I think about seven or eight blocks of downtown. And we let people walk in the street. So they're used to that. So for a lot of folks, it's just the idea of like, oh, we're doing this permanently. It's actually not a huge leap for them to make. And they can see the benefits there. Now, again, you get some of the for whom, because I think when you're talking about places in downtown, people come to downtown and expect this sort of nice walkable area. But if you're somebody who maybe lives downtown or works downtown, just has an office downtown, it may feel less convenient to you. And then I've heard people who work downtown being like, well, I used to be able to drive this way to get to my parking spot to go to work. And now I can't anymore. Right. And like that level of stuff, you start seeing the negatives. Again, broadly positive. And in places where they actually open up this question to a referendum or a vote or even just a public opinion poll, you generally see the keeping streets open to pedestrians winning the day. But the folks who are against it are often the folks who have a lot of influence in City Hall, the business owners, developers, people who work there. Right. That's always the challenge. It is interesting you mentioned like sitting next to traffic because I do remember that in Toronto, anyone familiar with Toronto on Young Street near Young and Eglinton, they took away some parking and made them into those cafe TO patios. 
But I remember sitting out on one of them and cars are going by. I think the speed limit's 40 or 50 or something and nobody drives the speed limit. So there's some very, very high speed traffic going by and trucks. And it's like, I don't know if I really like sitting here. Like it feels like you're in the road when you're talking about how these places need to be activated. I wonder if maybe some of that is because there's still a road, right? Like if they were turned into grass, if they were not asphalt, would they need to be activated this way? Would they need this kind of thought around like, is this a place I want to be? Because I mean, we don't have this conversation about parks, right? If there's a park, nobody has a question as to what you do with a park. Right. And parklets and open streets are conflated. And I've been conflating them in this conversation, but they really are two different things. Right. The only reason they're sort of combined is because cities sort of did both at the same time in response to the pandemic. They allowed for right. these parklets and they also closed down entire streets. But you're right. I almost sometimes I feel like a bad urbanist because I don't want to sit out in these parklets to eat because they do kind of suck. Well, they're not very pleasant. They suck because of the cars, right? Yeah. Like, I do like cafe seating as much as anyone. And here in San Luis Obispo, we actually have a post-war pedestrian mall from the 60s, early 70s maybe. Mm. And what I would do during the pandemic is I would get food and I would walk over there because it's much quieter and the whole street is closed and sit out in one of the tables there. And to the city's credit, they are actually considering adding on to that pedestrian mall. As part of this program from the pandemic, they realized that we have this one street closed. It's great. This street next to it, we could also probably close and it would be just fine. So they're in the process of actually going through the design phase of what would that new pedestrian mall look like permanently, really well designed. So I'm really excited. And part of me is also happy because if it's going to work anywhere, it's going to work in a place like San Luis Obispo. We literally have like the best climate in the United States. It's a college town. Yeah, You really do, right? Like it's beautiful there. It's not even particularly big, right? Like, it feels like this should be a bicycle city. Right. I haven't been there in a long time, I must admit, but I can't imagine it's changed that much. It's a pretty good bike city, yeah. We have about 50,000 people, which is not big. You can get anywhere by bike, really. Right. I mean, it's not a long bike ride to go anywhere. I live in one side of town. I commute to a campus on the other side of town, and it's 17 minutes on bike. (laughs) (laughs) It's a real rough commute, you know. So the fact that it works here is heartening, because if it didn't work here, I really have no hope whatsoever. Yeah, right. You might as well just pack it up and research something else. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) At least for the United States. It is interesting, the design of these places, because again, like I said, the Toronto ones are just so ugly with these giant, like, concrete jersey barriers and, like, big reflectors. It feels like you're sitting on a road or you're sitting next to a highway. Even the signs. It's those big, like, orange and black striped reflecting signs, you know? It feels unnatural, right? Whereas here in Amsterdam, they recently closed off a street in the city center. If anyone wants to look it up, it's News Eyes for Burkerval. And they ripped it up. They took out a whole bunch of parking. They turned it into, like, a little parklet. But they took the tram tracks and just made them grassy and just had them go, like, right Mm -hmm. through the grass. And I think doing that really just made it feel totally different. It wasn't just that it was the same street, but with a couple of things blocked off. I get why cities do that, because it's quick and it's cheap. But I think it still makes people think of it like a road, right? So there's still this vision of it as a road. Whereas when you see it with the grass, it's even almost hard to think about it as a road again. Is that something that's even feasible in the U.S., given the budgets that these people are working with? Well, yeah, again, it comes back to money here. And I think here in the United States, we have a culture now among planners, and I think it's generally a positive one, that if we want to sell improvements to streets, we can pitch it as a temporary solution first. And then when people get used to it, we can make it permanent, right? Yeah, the pilot project. I've heard that everything's a pilot project. Yes. So that's the problem now is that we do these a lot. And the pandemic was essentially 
a thousand of them all at the same time, but then where is the money to now make it permanent? So that's the challenge. And that's the nice thing about where I live here, where it's a wealthy community. So we have some money and we're going to make it permanent and it's going to look really nice. I have no doubt that it is, but it takes a lot of money. But the benefits here are, I think, still worth it. Like I said, we have this other block that's a pedestrian mall and it's so well done and it's been there for so long that people who walk by it, I tell them this is a pedestrian mall. And they're like, no, it's not. I'm like, yeah, this used to be a road and they can't even tell that it yeah. was once a road. Right. And how fantastic is that? Like, you know, not only do they not miss it, they don't even know that it was a road in the first place. And that's really sort of the holy grail. Yeah, I think that's exactly it because I know you've made a video about these before, the lifestyle centers that are appearing in the United States and Canada, where it's almost a form of cargo cult urbanism where they're kind of <laughs> like, this is what a downtown should look like. So a developer yeah. comes in and like draws it. And then puts a huge parking garage behind it, but it's all yeah. private property. Ultimately, I guess that's kind of what you're looking to turn these things into, that sort of outdoor mall, maybe even not lifestyle center, but an outdoor mall like you find in California, so that it feels like a mall, but doesn't have to be owned by one developer. It doesn't have to be a private development, but it feels that way. Yeah. I mean, design is important. I just recently sat on a review. I was a professor reviewing landscape architecture students who redesigned this space that I'm talking about. They thought it was a right project to sink their teeth into. So it was fascinating to see sort of, yeah, like there is a great diversity in how you can design this space. You can go for the straight up sort of mall version where, yeah, yeah it's just a great space to walk and patronize the shops. You know, you can think about it. Is this a place for community events and gathering, right? Like, right. is it a place where you can make it easy for food trucks to stop in? And you have to sort of think about all these different possibilities. You also have to think about, well, you're shutting down the street. How can delivery vehicles still access? How can emergency vehicles still access? So the design of these spaces is not a simple thing because right. there still are a complex group of actors and demands. But in the end, yeah, like in some ways you're sort of bringing the lifestyle center back. And of course, for those who don't know, the history of pedestrian malls was this guy, Victor Gruen. He developed the indoor shopping mall in Minnesota and yeah. then felt real guilty about it. And then basically started bringing the idea of pedestrianizing streets to make essentially the shopping mall come to downtowns. So there is this sort of historic idea of like, yeah, it's actually literally taking this shopping mall, bringing it downtown for better or for worse. Like, But we're finding that the actual design of the hardscape of the pedestrian mall doesn't really matter too much so long as it's flexible enough. And it really is about the uses along the mall, the activation, like our events being held here. Mm -hmm. And is it a lively space? I mean, so, you know, we can spend a lot of time talking about the design, but actually it's mostly what's happening all around it. Fair enough. That's good thinking. I mean, it's nice. You're actually clearly the expert in this and it's good to talk to you about it. <laughs> so <laughs> I think we're coming kind of the end of this conversation. I know we could talk about it forever, but is there anything you kind of want to finish on here, like about where this is going, where you see this happening, what people can do to make these open streets stay open? I think the thing that makes me optimistic about cities generally and then pedestrian spaces specifically is that it's a local issue and it doesn't take that many people to be in support of something to actually see it happen. So hopefully if, you know, you're somebody who listens to this kind of podcast, if you watch the videos that we make, you know, don't stop at watching the videos, but actually show up at meetings, write letters, get your friends involved. I mean, that's at the end of the day, how actual change is made and how we sort of see these spaces preserved. And I, you know, I can make video after video telling you that it's a good idea to keep these spaces, but it won't happen unless people actually show up. So it's kind of a broken record thing. I mean, you know, everybody says this, but like I've literally been in planning meetings where the same five people show up every single meeting to yep. promote one item. And guess what? We put yep. it in the plan because we, you know, we're like, all right, we'll shut you up and we'll get it done. And it really only takes a few people 
regularly showing up to make it happen. The bar is low, shockingly low, even in large cities. And it just takes a few people organizing. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the things. My channel was very much not started as an advocacy channel. I'm still not an advocate myself. I don't consider it an advocacy channel, but I know that people have become advocates after watching my content. But I'm really mostly there to show people what's possible. I don't really have the solution as to how they get there. However, I do know that you have to show up to community meetings. Like, cannot stress that enough. If there's only one thing you do to improve your city, it's show up to those meetings. Because I've been to them before. I've seen them. Where there's me, I am old, but even back then I was in my late 30s, and I was the youngest person there by like 30 years. Yes. Right? I mean, it's crazy. And people were like, nobody's going to ride a bicycle. And I'm like, I do. And they all kind of turn. They're like, what? Really? And they're like, well, that's because you don't have kids. And I'm like, yes, I do. What? Really? I mean, this is literally the level of conversation. But all you need to do, all you need to do is get like five of your friends to come out. Right. Yes. And speaking on behalf of the planning profession, I feel I can do that because I'm a certified planner here in the United States. But, uh, (laughs) you know, planners want you to come like you don't understand. Like I tell people email me all the time. Like, can you tell my planners to do this? I'm like the planners, they're on your side, dude, but they're only going to do as much as they have the political will to get done. Like if you show up at a public meeting, I swear to God, some planners might just hug you because yeah, uh, if I know, you, right? especially if you don't have gray hair, <laughs> they, they will <laughs> they will be so excited to see you there and they want to talk to you about this. You'll have IRL discussions like, like the kind we're having here with people who are knowledgeable and passionate right. about it. So if you're chasing the high of voting, you know, that civic duty, go to a public meeting. You'll get the same high. You might have to sit through some boring discussion, but you'll feel good at the end. It's a good feeling. I get people saying all the time, every planner in America needs to watch your videos. And I'm like, you know, it's not the planners that need to watch my video. They know all this stuff already. Half the stuff I got, I got from them. They know it all. You need to show up and tell them that you care about it because otherwise they end up wasting a lot of time drawing up these plans. And then the only people they bounce it off of are like, I want to park here. Yes. Planners don't want their plans to get dusty on a shelf somewhere, but they do if nobody does anything about it. So. So I think that's where we're going to end on this, uh, (laughs) because we really could talk about this forever. And I love it. I will definitely have you on again, Dave. It's really nice to have somebody that really knows this stuff. You keep selling yourself short here. You know, that's (laughs) okay. I'm going to interrupt you there. I know nothing about planning. I'm not a planner. I haven't gone to school for planning. At the same time, Jane Jacobs didn't know anything about planning and she did some great stuff too, right? So yeah, I get that. I am not saying that I am Jane Jacobs. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, no, no. A PS on the thing I just talked about about getting involved is that the great thing about planning is you do not need to be an expert to actually make positive change as you are an example of. So that's the great thing about planning. It's so accessible. So don't sell yourself short. Just because I've read a lot of books for a lot of years does not make me sort of any more (laughs) of an expert on this necessarily. So, So that's just my way of saying that, you know, we all sort of have a role to play. Yeah. And I think sometimes it's even just important to share your experience because that's ultimately all I'm doing is sharing my experience Mm -hmm. in cities I've been to, cities I've lived in. I really think that's all Jane Jacobs was doing, too. I think when you go to your community meeting, you share your experience Mm -hmm. with the city, right? You share like, this is the way I experience the city. I see it this way because I walk, because I cycle, because whatever. And I think that experience. Nobody's expecting a book report. They're just expecting your experience, (laughs) you know? All right. Well, thanks so much, Dave. It was really, really nice to talk to you. Do you have anything you want to promote before we go here? Nah, keep watching Not Just Bikes. (laughs) And keep watching City Beautiful (laughs) as well. Thanks so much.
That's all we have today for the Urbanist Agenda. But if you just can't wait to hear the next episode, I recommend you sign up to Nebula because every episode is uploaded there first. You can sign up at nebula.tv agenda and doing so also supports this podcast. Nebula also gives you access to all of the other creators who are on there, which is now over 150 at this point. You'll find videos and podcasts and classes, but there are also Nebula Originals, which are high-budget productions by content creators you may already know on a whole wide range of educational subjects. If you sign up with our link, that's nebula.tv agenda, then you'll get a discount off a yearly membership. That's $20 off, bringing it down to $30 per year, which is honestly a hell of a deal for what you're getting. Thanks again for listening to The Urbanist Agenda, and maybe next time you'll be listening on Nebula, and then you won't even hear this part.